0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andre Matishak, and I work as the deputy head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Devi Pravda. The presidential and legislative elections in Libya should take place on December 24th. While we read headlines about candidates such as Saif Gaddafi, the problems run deeper. At least according to Jalil Haushari, who is a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational organized crime when he concentrates his work on North Africa. He emphasizes that the legal framework for the upcoming elections is weak, and it may lead to various challenges, including violent clashes, that will undermine the concept of liberal democracy in Libya. We also talk about why people like Saif Gaddafi or Khalifa Haftar are running, and why Europe seemingly doesn't care about the suffering of Libyans. Listen to our conversation. me if I'm wrong, but it seems that Libya's political factions still don't have a common understanding regarding rules for the presidential and parliamentary elections that should take place on December 24th. What is the biggest problem here?
1: Well, there are
0: electoral laws.
1: One was passed through in September for the presidential elections and the other one for the legislative elections that was passed in October by the parliament. So the parliament, which is effectively the lower chamber in the East, officially declared two laws. And it did it in very opaque, dubious circumstances. But when it did so, both the UN and some countries like France, and even to some extent the United States, they kind of welcomed, especially the law on presidential elections in September, It was immediately accepted as valid, even though it was voted in uh, very questionable conditions. And uh, the quorum was not met, and the majority numbers are not clearly there. The bottom line is that both France, the UN, and you can even add the United States, they kind of applauded. They just were happy with that presidential elections law.
0: What kind of situation did it create? This is where divergence
1: begins, because you end up with a presidential elections law that is problematic in form and content, that is almost through a knee-jerk reaction, uh, embraced, celebrated by the UN and, and the states that I mentioned. And even before the uh, what acts like uh, the, the higher chamber, the High council of state in Tripoli, of course, they rejected them. Uh, for political reasons, mostly. So now you can't say that there's no electoral law. There is an electoral, there are two electoral laws, but they were never ratified by the High Council of State. Not only were they not ratified, but the UN, France, and the United States, they never really maintained their enthusiasm of September. They kind of went into like, form of ambiguity. You know, they kind of half ask, they did this, like this half request for a more robust legal framework. But they don't really say that there's a problem. So now we're like in a gray zone. And uh, last week on the 12th of November you had the Paris Summit and Italy was much tougher. What the Mario Draghi said was that there was no legal legal framework. And um uh, so he's not saying that there's a virtual law. He says there's no legal framework, and we need one.
0: Will such a statement change anything?
1: That's a very strong statement. It's not necessarily for political reasons that he said it. it's actually arguably true. And Britain also said we need a more robust legal framework and we need a contribution including including from the House of Representatives. So when you say that, like Britain did, you're effectively saying that the House of Representatives is needed, it needs to be active now in the form of a willingness, a willingness to issue amendments to the laws that it issued. There's an an expectation on the part of Britain and Italy and, and of course, a lot of Libyan factions. There's an an expectation that uh, maybe the House of Representatives would be willing to recognize that what it issued in September and October were flawed laws. Because if you issue an amendment, it means that your first attempt was not that perfect. And of course, this is a political question.
0: Why? Are they not willing to admit that those laws should be improved?
1: This is a, not a technical question. It's a, it's really about politics.
0: The parliament
1: did those things for political reasons, and it doesn't want to admit that it has to try again. It doesn't want to admit that anything is needed. So there's a silence on the part of the House of Representatives which means, you know, what we did was perfect. They don't need us. You know, the, house, the, the High Council of State is supposed to ratify it. We did our part. The ball is not in our court. And it's really about everybody else except us. We, we, are, we are above board. We are not to be bothered. And there's nothing to expect from us because we did our homework. If there's a problem, it's with other people. This explains a lot of the stalemate because, let me finish on this, the the stalemate is also due to the fact that internationally, no voice is willing to exert pressure on the House of Representatives because the United States could do it, the UN could do it, France could do it. All these three could do it and it would make a difference, but they refuse to do it. They refuse to insinuate or admit or acknowledge that the factions in the East are not entirely perfect. They are, they do not, those three voices do not want to say that the East has to do something now. That's why everybody is silent. If you notice, everybody is silent now. When people talk about December 24th, they always say platitudes.
0: It's interesting what you are saying because a few weeks ago, I talked to the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Libya and the head of the UN support mission in Libya Jan Kubish. Among other things he said that while there are various disagreements within the international community regarding Libya, basically all actors support elections. Do you see it differently?
1: First of all, when somebody tells you that everybody supports elections, it's meaningless because that's mm-hmm. not the issue. The reason you call Is not because you heard that there was going to be a vague attempt to do elections in Libya. The reason you called me is because we are less than five weeks from December 24th. The question is not whether or not elections should happen in Libya. The question is whether or not the first round of the presidential elections should happen on the 24th of December 2021. That is the only, not the only question, but this is the principal question. You know, there's a lot of Libyans who are honest people. Not everybody is honest, right? Not not everybody is genuine. But I know a lot of Libyans who are perfectly honest people who are in favor of a good, robust electoral process in Libya. But at the same time, they are against the idea of going in this next month And doing the first round of the presidential elections on the 24th of December 2021. Because if you do it so fast, it means automatically that you embrace the electoral laws that I was talking about a few minutes ago. So when Jan Kubish says to you, everybody in Libya agrees that there should be elections, he is wasting your time because that's not the issue.
0: Should the election be postponed then? Would you support it?
1: You know, I could support anything. It do not matter. I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. It, make, it would make absolutely no difference on the life of this nation. I have no influence over what happens in Libya. Okay, well, my job is to describe what I see and try to analyze it in objective, verifiable ways.
0: Then let's say that the elections will take place. Let's try to analyze it. What would it mean for the country? Anything positive?
1: Well, well, what it would mean if you go ahead with the current electoral laws, imagine that days continue to go by and weeks continue to go by and no new legal framework is put together. So in other words, the only legal framework is the two electoral laws that I was talking about, September and October 2021, issued by the H.O.R., Imagine that you go into the first round of the presidential elections on the 24th of December 2021, based on those two laws, what you will see happen between now and then is that you'll have entire communities, entire municipalities, entire neighborhoods, they will shut down the electoral offices, they will shut down the polling stations by force because there are not... All communities believe this, but some communities, including meaningful ones in terms of demographic size, they are opposed to those electoral laws. As the day of December 24th approaches, what they will do, they will use physical coercive means to shutter polling stations. In some places, the factions interested in shutting down polling stations will be attacked by other factions that are deeply in favor of those electoral laws. So you'll have clashes in some places. Not a big yeah. war, but you'll have local clashes that are bad enough, right? What you'll also have is that in some places, the polling stations will remain open, but the ballots will be thrown away and fraudulent ballots will be sent for, uh, for the counting. In some other places, the polling stations will be open, but the communities will boycott. So you'll have a very low level of participation. And then, importantly, the 25th of December, people will start waiting for the results. At some stage, the results will be published. When they are published, you'll have entire communities rejecting them saying we don't recognize them because the participation rate is too low. We didn't participate. There are so many municipalities. They boycotted those elections. We're not going to recognize the results. They should be considered null and void. At the same time, some of the factions associated with some of the candidates, because the candidates will be disappointed by the scores, their scores, they will also accuse the other candidates of fraudulent activities you know, falsification, illegitimate behavior, and so on and so forth. So most of the candidates that will be disappointed by their own performance in terms of percentage, they will not recognize they lost. They will say the whole thing was rigged. So you'll have a deeper polarization. Some candidates will be so disappointed, they will say, we are obviously in front of a conspiracy, we really tried peaceful means, but we are being made fun of, we are being mocked. So we have no choice but to grab our guns again and conduct a form of offensive. It is not going to be the war that you saw in 2019 with drones and hospitals being you know, destroyed and civilians being yeah. killed by the dozens but it would be bad enough. It would be like small, nasty offensives in different places. And then, and this is probably the most important thing I could tell you, is that people will realize that the electoral laws were indeed quite fragile.
0: What do you mean by this?
1: They are fragile in the sense that they don't guarantee a time frame for the second round of the presidential elections. You remember, you, you just notice The very bad environment that I'm describing for what happens after December 24th, in that moment of confusion, that moment of polarization, that moment of uncertainty, people will look at the laws and will look for some legal mechanism based on those laws that guarantee, a mechanism that guarantees that the second round must happen within let's say, 60
0: days. But it doesn't exist.
1: It doesn't exist. There's no time frame. So you combine the legal absence of a mechanism that gives you some kind of a time indication of when the second round should happen. And you combine that with the environment that I just gave you, that I just described for you. What you will get is basically the absence of a second round for the presidential elections. Now, imagine that you say, that's too bad. We don't care about the presidential elections. At least we should have the legislative elections. Same problem. The legislative elections are linked to the presidential elections in the laws, but not in terms of time frame. So there's no way for you to guarantee, let's say, the synchrony between the legislative elections and the second round of the presidential elections. So people will start like, fighting each other and debating each other on when to conduct or whether to conduct the second round. And the legislative, they will even be in deeper uncertainty. In all likelihood, what will happen is that the second round of the presidential election will not happen and the legislative election will not happen. And if they do happen, we have no way of guaranteeing that they should happen at the same time. So this means that the, pe- the people who, who have an interest in maintaining the parliament as it has been since 2014, seven years, people interested in keeping the parliament unchanged for more than seven years will say, why don't you hold the second round of the presidential and we'll look at the scores. We'll look at the results before we decide. So it will be basically, the, this means that the legislative elections will be held hostage. So you will have lost the synchrony and you still do not know whether or not the parliamentary elections are going to happen. You see, based on what I'm describing, and I'm trying to basically give you a very honest picture, so what this means is that we cannot go into the 24th of December. It's almost impossible.
0: It means that under the current legal framework, the elections will cause more problems for the country. Can I put it that way?
1: I really like liberal democracy, especially when the process is has a high level of integrity, when it's robust, when it's well defined. And I know that the popular sentiment is not necessarily going to be there everywhere. I know it's going to be difficult in terms of the circumstances, but at least I have a good, robust process that I know I can fight for. So I'm going to fight for a good process and I know that some bad players are going to give me a headache. But I think it's worth it. This is not the case here. If you go and face the difficulty, you are facing the difficulty for no good reason because you are fighting for a process that is objectively very, 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 very exceedingly frail. So you are basically playing with the concept. You are playing with the notion of liberal democracy in a nation that doesn't have a tradition in it that in fact has been in conflict for the last 10 years, and you use the notion, knowing full well that the process that you have in your head is not worth it. So what you're going to do effectively if you proceed, if you go ahead, you're going to discredit the concept for the sake of a process that is not even worthy of the name of a process. So you're doing something completely suicidal. It's not about difficulty of democracy, it's difficulty of something that is not even worth it.
0: Yeah, I think this is a very good point, and also a very important point, especially for the future of the country. But no matter what will happen, it's clear that the upcoming elections are generating some headlines, especially regarding the presidential candidates. Saif Gaddafi, the son of Libya's dictator Muammar Gaddafi, that was killed in October 2011, has registered as a candidate in the presidential elections. How important or important is his candidacy? Who does he represent?
1: Well, I think it's symbolically important. It's important in the sense that it will have an effect for sure. It's a psychological effect. It's an effect of mobilization. It's an effect of polarization. It's uh, an effect of reviving some of the factions that have been loyal to Muammar Gaddafi, his father. So there's a lot of ramifications and that are worth our time and attention, but not because he can win and become president. See, there's a difference between the symbolic effect of his whatever he was able to orchestrate. All these things are very important in the life of the nation because it revives a lot of bitterness, a lot of desire for revenge, a lot of, it's an opportunity to correct some of the humiliation that has been undergone by entire communities. That were, that were throughout the last 10 years loyal to Muammar Gaddafi. So all these things that it's stirring up are important. But at no point did I say to you that I believe that there's an electoral process, that I believe that his candidacy is going to be accepted. And certainly I never said to you, because I don't believe it's the case, I never said to you that he's popular enough and the process is robust enough and, and the state of the nation is unified enough for him to actually win. And he doesn't care. It didn't apply because he thinks that he is in Denmark and, the, and everything is robust and he's going to win. That's not the reason. He, he, he knows that he doesn't live in Canada or Denmark or New Zealand. He knows it. He knows that he is operating in a very, very fragile environment. Actually, that's the reason he did it, because he chose a, a moment of vulnerability. And this is actually the moment to get the largest amount of bang for his buck. He's also fragile, but the environment surrounding him now is even more fragile than he is. That's why he chose this particular timing. It also explains the location, Southwest. What is the Southwest? It's an area that is very divided, where Haftar is weak, and where Trip and Misrata are weak. So he's obviously looking for areas of weakness in order to look strong. And his candidacy, if it's, rejected. He will utilize that as well. He will say, see, I told you, I'm so popular, they prevented me from running. There is a conspiracy. The reason there is a conspiracy is because of the foreign states. The reason the foreign states did that conspiracy is because they know deep down in their heart that I'm very popular. And he's going to basically utilize that, exploit that for narrative purposes. And it's some sort of a comeback. Does it mean, you know, is he going to end up controlling the nation? No, of course not. No, no, absolutely not. If you ask me, no.
0: Another news from Libya that generated headlines this week was Khalifa Haftar announcing his presidential election bid. It was expected, but how do you read this?
1: Well, Haftar, I mean, what makes him peculiar as a candidate is that he's the only candidate that really has a very vertical control over a large number of municipalities and districts. So in those areas that he controls from a military perspective, especially in the north of Cyrenaica, what will happen there is effectively what happens in Egypt when there's an election, or what happens in Syria when there's an election, is that he will be able to deliver a performance of 93% or something like that because of fear is it enough to win no but same thing he doesn't really care he's like why did he send his son to israel does he actually believe that his control over the west of the country which happens to be the most populous which happens to be the very area that he attacked does he really believe that he is going to suddenly tomorrow control the west as I said, more than two-thirds of the population is concentrated in the northwest of Libya. Does he actually believe that he will, be, he will be so comfortable as a leader that he will be able to deliver a recognition of Israel in that area, in that part of the nation? The nation that, is, that, has, that has roughly the same tradition as Tunisia and Algeria in terms of the relationship with Palestinians? Of course not. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't truly believe that he's going to win. He's just utilizing all of this to say, to depict himself as a victim. In that logic, he will get more support from Greece, Greece, more support from Israel, more support from a lot of factions within Washington, a lot of support from maybe France. And so what I'm saying to you is that the elections, uh, by being implemented in such vulnerable ways, will contribute to deep the de facto partition of Libya.
0: At the end, does it matter who wins or even who is a favorite?
1: I cannot speak in those terms because if you think in terms of winner, it means that you believe in the electoral process. Mm-hmm. Like if you sue someone in a country, if you sue someone legally, it means automatically that you believe in the system. That's why you believe you're going to win. That's why you're suing. But what I'm saying here is that the because you believe the process is robust enough. Here, the process is not robust enough. So of course, if there's a winner tomorrow, it will matter. But between where we stand now and having in a clear manner, the identification of a winner through rules that have been more or less recognized as being coherent, there's a huge chasm, there's a huge distance which I don't think can be crossed. Not now, not in this legal framework.
0: Yeah, I got it. But we are talking about elections, and many in Europe look at Libya almost exclusively through the lens of migration and see the transit country for refugees and migrants. And, in fact, my country also, I mean Slovakia. How narrow-minded is this approach?
1: The mentality that you noticed, the reason it's so vivid, the reason it's so widespread is because a um, urban center of 1.5 million people called the Greater Tripoli Area was attacked for 14 months. A crisis that displaced somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 Libyans. It also killed, in total, somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 Libyans. And this crisis has been a tragedy for Libyans but it didn't really cause a spike in migrants' arrivals in the EU. So now the mentality in Brussels and in Rome and Paris and so on and so forth is that you have the migrant thing on the one hand, maybe it's going up. Right now it's going up because of Ethiopia, because of the weather, because of economic crisis in Sudan, because of all kinds of stuff. It's going up, but it You can look at it and decide on this way, in a certain way, and completely separate from that, you have the suffering of Libyans in their own country. And now people, especially from an EU perspective, are implicitly assuming all the time that the two things have almost nothing to do with each other. So if you tell them, look, if we are going into an election, let's say, and the election itself, because it's badly designed, is going to create mayhem, they are not truly worried because they think it's mayhem amongst Libyans. But who cares about Libyans? They can kill each other the way they did in 2019. Who gives a damn? You know, it doesn't matter. So that's the legacy of the war of 2019 and 2020. If you go to any European parliament, you could talk to them about Libyan suffering. Nobody cares. The reason nobody cares is because not only do they care about migration, but they also believe that there's no connection. If they believed that there were connection, they would end up, caring about the suffering, not because they are altruistic, but simply because they are selfish and they don't want to end up with a high level of departure. But for whatever reason, the way the war 2019-2020 unfolded, it unfolded in a way where people suffered a lot, but the number of departures by Libyans didn't go up, and the number of departures by non-Libyans didn't go up in terms of arrivals in the EU. So that's why the mentality is so cynical.
0: This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.